Catherine Hadro. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly, nowhere to run. Israeli airstrikes rain down on the town of Rafah, scattering Gazan refugees. The United Nations responds. Substance versus showmanship. The last GOP president debate of 2023 finally focused on issues important to voters. We will break it down. Standing strong. The Democrats could care less about the unborn and they could care less about our military. Senator Tommy Tupperville explains to Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales why he released his hold on military promotions. And Christmas at the Capitol. Witness a reenactment of our Savior's birth in the center of Washington, D.C., complete with live music and animals. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us on the Feast of St. Ambrose. I'm Catherine Hadro in for Tracy Sable. Our top story tonight, an unprecedented challenge to the state law banning most abortions in Texas. A judge ruled today a woman who is 20 weeks pregnant can abort her baby. The decision was announced over Zoom. I am going to grant the temporary restraining order for Ms. Cox, Mr. Cox, and Dr. Carson. The baby has trisomy 18, which the mother's lawyers argue carries a high risk of miscarriage or stillbirth. State officials say the woman's life is not at risk. They are likely to appeal the ruling. We turn now to Chelsea Yalman in Texas, the national director of public policy for the pro-life group Human Coalition. Chelsea, thank you for being with us. First off, your reaction to the judge's decision and what comes next? Yes, well, thank you for having me. I mean, I think we can all start with compassion for this difficult, challenging situation that this woman is facing. She is facing a high-risk pregnancy, and she has found out about a terrible diagnosis for her unborn child. Um, and from there, we want to emphasize the fact that a growing, living human being in the womb with 10 fingers and 10 toes who can suck his or her thumb at the, a at the age of 20 weeks pregnant, which is how pregnant she is, that it's a human of dignity and worth no matter what type of diagnosis that that child has. And instead of being exploited by her lawyers and her doctors for political gain to challenge pro-life laws in Texas, this woman deserves the utmost care. She deserves real health care and real solutions for the challenges she is facing. Chelsea, I want to follow up and reiterate that point you just made. This pregnant woman, a 31-year-old mother of two, says it's likely her baby will die because of the trisomy 18 diagnosis. And this is heartbreaking all around. What is the pro-life response to tough cases such as this one? Yes, well, I would just emphasize that, you know, we look to pro-life gynecologists and medical professionals for answers to that question. And their best recommendations are in situations where a woman is 20 weeks pregnant, um, to wait as long as they can to deliver early sometimes. That can be through C-section, that can be through induction, and to provide compassionate palliative care for her and her unborn child. We wanna see both, both patients cared for well, mothers alongside their children, and in situations like this, there is a high risk. You know, but the pro-life gynecologists also say that a diagnosis like this is not always a death diagnosis. Some of these babies can live, um, and it can be a really difficult situation, but this, Certainly, she deserves compassionate care, um, not to be entangled in lawsuits like this. Uh, it's certainly stressful. Her doctor should be held accountable for providing her positive care. And pro-life Texas laws allow for just that. 
pro-life laws in Texas have cared for pregnant women in emergency situations before, during, and after Roe. Nothing has changed in the legal landscape except for the politics. Chelsea, we have about a minute left. And, you know, this case is among the biggest ongoing challenges to U.S. pro-life laws so far. Do you expect we'll start seeing similar cases in other states? I absolutely do. So her lawyers are abortion activists. The first line of their brief, the first summary of argument is that, quote unquote, abortion is health care. We know that not to be the case. Abortion ends an innocent human life um, in situations like this. We know that they are looking for clients and patients like this. Hopefully it's a one in a million case. My heart goes out to her, her family, her children, um, and I hope that she can find the care that she, she really needs. Thank you for your insight on this developing news story. Chelsea Yalman with Human Coalition. Thank you. Thank you. Republican presidential candidates clash over global and domestic issues. They're hitting the campaign trail again today after a fiery debate last night, minus the frontrunner Donald Trump, who also became the target of attacks. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen. Good evening, Catherine. President Joe Biden also weighing in on the 2024 presidential election. He says there are probably 50 Democrats who could beat Donald Trump. And today, the former president's potential path back to the White House took another detour. As he tries to return to the White House, former President Donald Trump first returns to court in New York, facing civil business fraud charges that could upset his namesake business, telling reporters, we did nothing wrong. The bank loves us while calling the attorney general a lunatic. It's a fraud. The whole case is a fraud. What they've done is they've weaponized justice, and this is coming from the White House. Despite his legal troubles, the former president still dominates presidential polls. I'm beating Biden by a lot. He's way ahead of his Republican rivals who took swipes at him last night in a News Nation debate. I'm in this race because the truth needs to be spoken. He is unfit. This is a guy who just said this past week that he wants to use the Department of Justice to go after his enemies when he gets in there. This is my issue with all three of my other colleagues on this debate stage is all three of them have been licking Donald Trump's boots for years for money and endorsements. The candidates also attacked each other. Her donors, these Wall Street liberal donors, they make money in China. They are not going to let her be tough on China, and she will cave to the donors. She will not stand up for you. First of all, he's mad because those Wall Street donors used to support him, and now they support me. And back in the campaign trail today, another push to gain ground with voters before they start heading to the polls next month. We need somebody who is going to be a strong conservative leader. We can't have a typical establishment politician that will just cave to these people. And the decisions that people who get elected next year to the presidency are making will have about this much effect on their lives and this much effect on yours. Also tonight, the real clear politics average of polls shows former President Trump with a 47-point lead over his nearest Republican competitor. In fact, he's beating all of them combined. And the president, former president is also beating the current president, President Biden, by a very narrow margin, just two points. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. Dr. Matthew Green is a professor of politics at the Catholic University of America. He joins us now. Matthew, this debate had, for the first time in my memory, substantive discussion on gender transition procedures for minors and parent rights. Do you see this issue as being an important one for GOP voters in 2024? 
Well, it's hard to see if it's going to be that important. Certainly in the general election, this is not an issue that seems to have a broad um, interest. It's certainly not at the top of most voters' minds. Within the Republican base, um, it may be an issue, and it could conceivably determine uh, the outcomes of some early races, some early primaries. Um, but mostly voters care about, uh, from what we can tell, things like inflation, uh, the deficit, uh, crime. Um, these are issues that are generally front and center for the majority of voters. You know, there seems to be a prominent ideological divide among the GOP candidates on the United States' role in foreign policy affairs. Is this a new trend within the Republican Party? Well, there's always been a strain of isolationism in the Republican Party, but it really came to the fore with the election of Donald Trump in 2016, um, and then members of Congress who were reflecting uh, what they deemed as this new rise in isolationism following Trump's election, uh, to the point that, you know, 20 years ago, you would not have seen um, members of either party really seriously contesting whether we should give funding to uh, Ukraine, for example, uh, against Russia. But now we do. And so this is, a, I would say, a new and prominent strain in the Republican Party. Chris Christie had the most aggressive attacks against Trump last night. The others, I would say, were more muted. Can you speak to the fine line that these candidates need to walk when discussing Trump in this race so that they don't isolate his supporters? Well, this, as long as there's a sense that Trump's supporters are the key to the nomination, then Trump has a, human, a tremendous advantage. And other candidates really have a difficult time. They can either challenge Trump and then lose those supporters, or they cannot challenge Trump, in which case uh, Trump retains the support of those supporters. And so um, what it is really a very uh, difficult uh, line that, that the uh, other candidates have been trying to navigate. And I would say so far, uh, neither the anti-Trump uh, line, which is the Chris Christie line, or the let's um, you know keep the Trump supporters happy approach, as um, uh, Governor DeSantis and others have done, neither seem to have worked very well, frankly. Mm -hmm. On a different topic, California Representative Kevin McCarthy stunned D.C. with news yesterday that he is resigning. So in a span of a few months, he went from Speaker of the House to being voted out as Speaker to now leaving before his term is up. Matthew, what does this reveal about the health of our Congress today? Well, what I think what it tells us is that uh, while Congress uh, may be healthy, it's really the House Republican Party that has uh, significant issues. And this is only the latest in a string of uh, Republican speakers who have either resigned or for, been forced to step down or have chosen uh, not to run again, because the party is fundamentally a divided party. And it's not ideologically divided. It's divided over whether or not uh, uh, what kind of tactics and strategy to use and whether or not to be loyal to party leaders. And as long as you've got a faction of Republicans who are willing to challenge their leaders on their power and their authority, it's going to be very, very difficult for any future uh, Republican Party, and the majority especially, to govern effectively. I mean, to that point, the House GOP had a razor-thin majority. Now it's even thinner. How's that going to play out for the rest of this term? It's going to continue to pose challenges and even more challenges for the current speaker, Mike Johnson, because he has so few votes to work with. Um, it'll be almost impossible for him to pass legislation that's highly partisan, given his party is so small and it does not agree on everything. But the problem, of course, is if he works with Democrats, depending on the issue, he may get pushback from the more conservative members of his party. And they still have rules in the House that allow any one member to try to remove a speaker. And so that is a sort of sort of Damocles hanging over uh, Mike Johnson. And I'd say that with McCarthy's uh, decision to leave early, that sword is getting a little bit closer to Speaker Johnson's head. 
Dr. Matthew Green, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. The Pentagon's abortion travel policy remains in effect after Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville released his holds on more than 400 military promotions. However, Republicans say that does not mean the fight is over. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales has been following this story for the last 10 months and joins us with the latest. Eric? Good evening, Catherine. Yes, Senator Tommy Tuberville told Republican colleagues this week that he was releasing his holds. Otherwise, the Democrat-led Senate would have voted to change the rules and allow the nominees to be approved. I talked at length with Senator Tuberville, who tells me that he's disappointed with the outcome. You can be pro-life and you can be for the military. You don't need to take sides on this. And for some reason, we had some rep Republicans that did that. The Democrats could care less about the unborn and they could care less about our military. Chuck Schumer could have solved this problem in a matter of days when we first put this hold on these promotions. I never talked to him. I talked a couple times, a couple of minutes to the Pentagon, and I never talked to the President of the United States. Senator Tuberville also tells me opposition became personal, even from fellow Republican senators. And I want a strong military, but the problem is they're destroying our military. Uh, they're not doing what's right. I haven't had... Uh, uh, Republican senators come after me that got very personal, uh, very upsetting to me that they got personal on the Senate floor about how I was handling something when it is my right. I was representing and still am representing the people of, of Alabama and the citizens of this country. Republican Senators Joni Ernst and Dan Sullivan helped forge an agreement with Senator Tuberville requiring votes for only senior level nominations. They tell me the target now is the third in charge at the Pentagon. This nominee, Derek Cholet, would be the number three guy out at Department Department of Defense, and he actually is the one that would oversee policy. And I'm going to hold this guy until I take him out, if I have to, if we don't get a, a change in the policy. So to me, this is the this was the hold opportunity that always made the most sense. Again, why do we why were we punishing great American heroes, many of whom are pro-life? Trust me, I know a lot of them who. Um, have nothing to do with the dispute. Senator Ernst tells me she tried to include an amendment to the defense bill overturning the abortion travel policy, but it didn't pass. We are very, very pro-life, but we are also pro-national defense. And what we don't want to see is the sacrifice of one for another. We should support both. So what is next? Senator Tuberville tells me that he's going to continue to fight for the unborn. Meanwhile, Senator Sullivan, well, he says he's confident that he has the votes to actually stop the nomination of the Pentagon civilian, the third in charge. He tells me that even some Democrats want him out. So holding out hope for the pro-life community. Catherine? Eric, I want to switch gears. Congressman Jamal Bowman was censured today. What exactly does that mean? Well, censoring is basically a formal slap on the wrist. There is no other punishment included. It's more of a public embarrassment. You know, the New York congressman was censored by a vote of 214 to 191, largely along party lines. You may recall Congressman Bowman pulled a fire alarm during a House vote back in September. He pleaded guilty to the misdemeanor charge uh, back in October and agreed to pay a $1,000 fine. Bowman is the third Democrat so far to be censored since the Republicans took control of the House.
Thank you, Eric. The House GOP released a resolution to formalize its months-long impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. The resolution authorizing the inquiry comes as a trio of committee leaders overseeing the probes tried to wrangle witnesses and documents. For months, the committees have investigated the Biden family finances, as well as the Justice Department probe into Hunter Biden's failure to pay taxes. A markup of the resolution is scheduled for next Tuesday, and a full House vote is expected soon after. Now, two months in, the war between Israel and Hamas shows no signs of abating. An Israeli airstrike is believed to have hit a residential block in Khan Yunis. This area is overcrowded with people who fled from the north after Israel told them to evacuate. The mass displacement is leaving thousands with no place to go. The IDF released this video today of what it says are troops operating in the Gaza Strip. Israeli forces claim to have killed two senior Hamas members within the last few days. Officials in Gaza say Israel has killed more than 17,000 people during its retaliatory campaign. That has earned a number of countries, including the UK, to warn Israel. The people who call you know, for an immediate ceasefire now, if we leave Hamas in charge of even a part of Gaza, there will never be a two-state solution because you can't expect Israel to live next to a, a group of people that, are, that want to do October the 7th all over again. But of course, as Israel takes the steps that it's taking, we want them to obey international humanitarian law. We want them to minimize civilian casualties. The U.N. Secretary Council is expected to meet tomorrow to discuss the war in Gaza. This follows a move by Secretary General Antonio Guterres invoking Article 99. This allows him to bring any matter he believes is threatening international peace and security to the group. Guterres wants the 15-member council to use all of its influence to prevent a human catastrophe in the region. The U.S. military is grounding all of its Osprey V-22 aircraft. The move comes one week after eight service members were killed following an Osprey crash off the coast of Japan. Early investigations led officials to believe an aircraft error caused the crash. The Air Force, Navy and Marine Corps have more than 400 Ospreys. New details tonight following a deadly shooting at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, that left three people dead and one in critical condition. According to a law enforcement official, the gunman was a professor who had unsuccessfully tried to find a job at the school. Classes at UNLV have been canceled through Friday. We have a lot more still to come on EWTN News Nightly, including... She was still uncomfortable with the situation, so then she again went back to the chaperone and said, this is, this is not going to work for me. These parents were kept in the dark when their daughter was told to share a bed with a biological boy. How they're fighting back and lift high the cross, new developments and the restoration of the Cathedral of Notre Dame. Welcome back. In a stunning case out of Colorado, the parents of an 11-year-old girl are demanding their school district change its policy on overnight trips and rooming assignments. This after their fifth-grade daughter was assigned to sleep in the same bed as a biological male student identifying as a transgender female. The girl only found out because the boy who identifies as transgender told her on the first night of the trip. In a letter to the Jefferson County School District, the parents' lawyers state, quote, 
This policy and practice violates the sincerely held religious beliefs of our clients and their children, the parental rights of them and other parents in your district, and the privacy rights of all students. Joe and Serena Wales are the parents of the 11-year-old girl. Kate Anderson serves as senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, the law firm representing the Wales family. Thank you all for being here. Joe and Serena, you're keeping your daughter's name private for obvious reasons. She's an 11-year-old girl. When your daughter called you from her field trip, what did she say? Um, well, Serena was on the trip. She called Serena, and uh, I, I was home with our—we have twins that I was home with as well. Um, but when she called me, she was she was in the bathroom and she was you know, trying, speaking quietly uh, and she filled me in on some things that happened during the day. And then she said, no, there's there's one other thing that I need to tell you. And, and she sent me a text telling her what was going on. So I called Serena and she confirmed, um, confirmed the story. Yeah. So she called me from the bathroom as well. I was down in the lobby and I asked her to come down and like. Let's talk about the story a little bit more and find out the details of it. And from then, we talked to one of the chaperones who then uh, reached out to the the um, leader on the trip. And they and at that point, he called the parents and confirmed it. And I understand it took several requests to move your daughter to a different room. Can you expand on that? Yeah. So our the one of the main purposes of this trip is not only to see our great nation's birthplace, but also for these kids uh, to start learning self-advocacy and self-sufficiency and confidence in that sort of an area. So um, I directed our daughter to speak with her chaperone and advocate for herself on on what she would feel the most comfortable with. And an idea was presented to her at first, and she thought that that might work for her. But then digging into it a little deep, deeper, she realized she was still uncomfortable with the situation. So then she again went back to the chaperone and said, this is this is not gonna work for me. And, um, and then we found the solution of moving uh, two of the girls to a different room. Kate, I'd like to go to you now, you know, minors and gender transitioning is one conversation, but it seems that this case is really about parents' rights and consent and protecting children. What exactly is the Wales family asking of the school right now? We're asking Jeffco to make it clear that they will let parents know about their policy of rooming students based on gender identity rather than sex before with it on a trip. So they parents fill out tons of paperwork. They could let parents know. They could let parents opt out of that policy, and they could handle this in a way that protects the privacy of all of the students involved. Instead, what they did was set up a situation where an 11-year-old girl found out that she was supposed to sleep in the same bed with a biological boy who identifies as a girl, but didn't find out until the evening, that first evening of the trip, and her parents didn't know either. Um, that's something that shouldn't happen to any child um, or any parent. And so so we're asking Jefferson County to uh, clarify their policy to ensure that all parents have information ahead of time so they can best protect their children. And Kate, can you briefly explain what stealth mode means? And is this a common policy when it comes to schools and field trips? Well, our understanding is that the student who identifies as a girl um, decided to go on the trip and not tell the other students, and um, certainly we want to respect that student's privacy. The problem was the student waited and then told um, the Wales's daughter that he is biologically male but identifies as a girl 
right before they were supposed to basically crawl into bed to go to sleep that night. Um, and so it was something that this young girl wasn't prepared for. Uh, she got along great with this other student then and for the rest of the trip, but she felt uncomfortable sleeping in the same bed as a biologically male student on any trip. Um, and her parents didn't know about it. She didn't know about it ahead of time. They could have easily prepared so that they could protect everybody's privacy um, and these parents' rights to uh, make the best decisions in a situation like this for their daughter. Finally, Joe and Serena, how is your daughter doing today? How has this affected her? Um, she's she's doing great. This week's been a bit of a whirlwind with uh, with uh, the media attention, so she's she's working through that. But um, yeah, she's uh, I couldn't be more proud of her the way she handled herself on the trip and the way she's handled herself since. Um, she's she's. She's doing very well. Thank mm. you for asking. Well, we will continue to monitor the developments on this. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you, Catherine. Thank Thanks you. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, it's won Europe's best Christmas market three years in a row, and you've probably never heard of it. We'll reveal the location, plus Miracle on First Street witness a beloved Christmas tradition outside the Supreme Court. Thanks for staying with us. For the first time since 2019, a golden cross is now atop the spire of Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. The cross is identical to the one lost in the devastating fire. French President Emmanuel Macron will visit the site tomorrow to check on its progress. The cathedral is set to reopen on the Solemnity of the Immaculate Conception 2024. Locals and tourists in Croatia are getting into the festive spirit with the annual Christmas market in Zagreb. The dazzling lights and stalls have become a must-visit spot. The market offers handmade crafts, Croatian food and gifts. Shoppers can even ice skate across the market's ice park. Advent Zagreb has often been voted the best Christmas market in Europe. Finally tonight, Capitol Hill is known for the Republican elephant and the Democrat donkey. Today, they were joined by sheep and even a camel. It was all part of a live nativity scene. The Faith and Liberty Group began the initiative 20 years ago. They recreate the birth of Christ with volunteer actors and live animals. This year, the scene took place right outside the Supreme Court. We thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Catherine Hadro. Good night and God bless.